This is Paul Nobles from Eat Inform, and I am here with a special guest. We did a podcast roughly, I would say six months ago, maybe four to five months ago, where we talked about hormone replacement, specifically male hormone replacement, but we'll also get into a little bit of, you know, what it looks like for women, because I know we have a large female audience. Um, but between then and now, you know, I, the the podcast was really interesting. It was it was one of the things that people probably you know reached out to me more than anything um, in any podcast in the past, right? And uh, especially for me, who's fifty one and really was struggling with energies and, and things of that nature. And I'll get more into specifics there, but I'm going to let Gil introduce himself. And uh, Gil, take it away. Thanks, Paul. Uh, appreciate you having me back on. Uh, yeah, so I think it was actually longer than that. Time flies. I think it was sometime, I want to say around like maybe September of last year when, when we first did that, the, uh, the previous episode. So um, yeah, my specialty has essentially been in fitness, nutrition, um, body recomposition. Um, I, I'm, I guess I could say retired now from uh, amateur bodybuilding. I competed in NPC for several seasons. And uh, I also, for, uh, for a living, I, I manage and oversee medical practices, specifically in the hormone field. Um, I don't like to use the word anti-aging, sort of cliche, but essentially we fix and repair hormone deficiencies in men and women um, and sexual dysfunctions. So my, my primary company, Next Level Dietetics, which is nextleveldietetics.com, is where I can be reached for um, essentially consultations or anything of that sort. But from there, what I often do is I will direct people who need to have medical intervention um, to become patients of one of the four clinics, which I, uh, I manage. And the one up here in uh, New Jersey, we offer telemedicine, which we can cover many states. And now with the recent outbreak of the virus, the federal government recently loosened regulations on telemedicine where they allow, um, I guess, bypassing, if you will, of certain regulations that previously required a physical examination prior to a prescription being issued. Um, so now they have essentially made medical providers um, federally licensed in all 50 states under this pandemic to practice. So we've been getting flooded with telemedicine inquiries. And, uh, you know, we, we can get into as, as shallow or as deep as you'd like into the, the hormone field uh, in terms of science, or we can keep it layman terms, you know, whatever you feel your audience would benefit from the most. So I'm also going to give people, for people who are listening to this that aren't familiar with Eat to Perform, or this is their first time, we have not done free trials in three years. Um, it's something that we've wanted to do as a business. We were looking to pivot in that direction and maybe have two separate types of memberships. And even though uh, we, we may not be able to do this after the, the pandemic, you know, where, where we're all quarantined and things of this nature, we are doing that right now. So it's kind of a unique opportunity if you want to try each reform and you want to start trying to get, I mean, you know, it's really easy when you're at home to kind of get overwhelmed with snacking, get into some bad habits and things of that nature. And I think what most people 
talk about and, and Gil's, you know, kind of the higher level with the people that are, are looking to get, you know, spleen striations, I always joke about. Um, but for most people, what we do is really more of kind of sharpening the, the sword type of stuff, right? And uh, it really does make a difference. I think a lot of people can, you know, look at a online calculator and think that they're going to actually accomplish something. But, but the reality is, is that if you don't have someone, you know, there's anywhere from, you know, 50 to 100 hurdles that you will encounter in the first three months of any type of diet intervention. And, you know, most people get stuck at the one, two or three, right? And to be honest with you, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, online, you're going to get a great information because sometimes you'll Google something with a mindset that actually is not relevant to your situation. And I'm, I'm fairly certain we'll be able to get into a little bit about that as we kind of walk through things. So what I wanted to do was, you know, I started, I'm trying to think of when, because I think you're right. I think we, we did the podcast in September. And then I probably, I'm only, you know, 10 weeks in or so. And I wanted to walk people through what the experience is with telemedicine because um, I'm in Minnesota, right? And uh, what I basically did was we had my blood work go through um, LabCorp, which there's LabCorp virtually everywhere. If you've been following, you know, all the press releases from the White House, LabCorp, some of the people that are um, designing some of these tests and distributing the tests, right? So LabCorp is kind of a big deal. Um, it, it really is amazing. The, the people there have done two blood tests. So, so the first one um, was just to see where I was, right? So uh, I'm going to try and give as many specifics as I can, and, and you're more than willing to, uh, I, I'm perfectly fine with you sharing anything in regards to my personal situation, if that's possible. Yeah, but, what, I'll do, what I'll do, Paul, is you're free to discuss your own personal stuff due to HIPAA regulations. What I cannot do is I cannot discuss uh, privacy-related issues. So once you do speak of something, yes, I can, I can discuss it, but I can't reveal it. What I can do is I can speak in general terms, and then obviously okay. you as a patient can go ahead and discuss whatever you feel comfortable discussing. So I started getting fit around 39. I am 51. And I was taking, I was doing a lot of body fat testing at the University of Minnesota, which at that point was either BodPod or DEXA scan, right? Um, I really did not get super into body fat testing until, and, and we probably both know that body fat testing comes with all manner of problems, right? I don't, I don't even bother with it personally anymore. I, I use the mirror. Yeah, at the end of at the end of the day, what I decided for myself was that it just ended up just kind of being this this thing that messed with my mindset a little bit too much. And I'll talk a little bit about that because you know I did something interesting that I think surprised you at the time, um, and has been actually very interesting as I'm you know, adding testosterone and, and my levels are getting, you know, close to, to normal. 
Uh, just so everybody knows, you know, once again, you know, we talked about this in the last podcast. We're not talking about kind of the levels that would be um, considered to be steroids, right? We're talking about, you know, if you have kind of an illness, you go to a doctor, you fix that illness, right? So when I was 39, I did get tested for testosterone. My free was right at 10. My total was right at 450. That is pretty low, right? Um, just, I just want to clarify, uh, units are very important. Oftentimes we get guys, I, you know, I moderate a couple of forums online, uh, specifically on social media, where guys come in for advice and, and whatnot. And, and every day we see this, guys come in and they throw numbers around and they fail to mention units. There are different labs and they're in the different countries and different units of measure. And without units of measure, uh, you're really comparing apples and oranges. So it's important to note that the numbers you just stated are measured in nanograms per deciliter. Um, so I just want to notate that because some guys will get tested and they try to compare numbers. Um, sometimes it's picograms per milliliter. Or, you know, so a lot of different, different uh, units that are used. Nanograms yeah. per deciliter is the most commonly used in the U.S., but not always. Uh, but the, the two numbers you just mentioned are nanograms per deciliter. So it's important to notate that. So when I was 39, um, you know, I estimated my body fat was close to 45%, right? So I was morbidly obese. Mm -hmm. um, I was 255. A lot of the times people ask me, well, you know, um, I'm estimating 255, right? At, at 235 would have been the last time that I ever weighed myself because I just didn't even want to know at a certain point, right? So it was just got to be that bad um as i started to so the first time that a body fat tested was actually when i got down to 187 i believe it was and i body fat tested i can't remember exactly what it was but i think it was 32 percent so what essentially was happening, right? So I lost all this weight. Um, and I mean, I'm just going to tell you straight up, right? Because, you know, for, for those that don't see Gil, you might see this video, maybe not. I'm not really sure, but most people are going to listen to this on, on the podcast. Um, Gil's is a bearded guy with like big biceps, right? And here I am going to explain how I cried the first time I, I saw my body fat test because you know, essentially I'd lost 70 pounds. And even though I was down body fat percentage, people are unrealistic about what that actually means, right? And so when I looked at it, I certainly looked healthier than I was previously. Um, but it was, it was very hard to reconcile that, that I was really only, you know, down from, you know, kind of this estimation of mid 40th percentile to what is ultimately, you know, low 30s, right? And so I was, there's, there's no way the tests are wrong. So one week later, I go back, turns out the test was right, right? It was basically just a, just a, a little bit of a, a difference one way or the other. So my, my testosterone is, is low, right? My total testosterone um, is, is also low. So I knew at that time that I was low, right? Um, certainly not, not, um, 
you know, when I was talking to my primary care person, they, they did not raise it to the level of concern. And as I became more accustomed to, you know, how these numbers work, you know, the, the just energy levels, you know, all the things that you end up doing, um, they end up having an effect of, you know, how you can build muscle, your energy levels to work out, right? Because when you're talking about being morbidly obese, as an example, I would argue that if you try to do it just with calories, you will never, ever get there. You have to have some level of activity. And for me, that activity was just cardio. Now, the problem that I ran into in that scenario, as you know, you might be able to imagine, because even if you just did like some basic <laughs> you know, monkey with an abacus math, I blew through a ton of muscle. Um, as I was coming down, right? And I did not have a familiarity with resistance training and things of this nature. I was also, I, I was in a motorcycle accident, right? So I definitely, there was a few times where I lost some muscle along the way, right? So the only reason I'm bringing that up is because for 12 years, I've known that, so when I was tested, through you guys, I tested at 12.7 and then my total was 350, right? So if you look at it, um, free went up a little bit and total went down a little bit. And so, so if, if we just kind of bridge the gap and go, okay, from when I was 10 to when I was 12.7, you're still low really that whole time, right? And so part of the equation of getting lean is building lean mass, right? And then potentially getting rid of body fat. The problem that you run into when you can't hold on to your lean mass is that you're putting too much emphasis and stress on the body fat percentage part. The interesting thing was, is because my body was really not familiar with any level of resistance training or anything like that. Once I started to do that, I did see, so, so I got to, I got to this point, basically after about a year, I got to about 21%, right? And I, I probably tested once a month at the university of Minnesota, either. Uh, it's interesting because at the university of Minnesota, I don't know how familiar you are with Ansel Keys or the uh, Minnesota starvation experiment, but it literally forms the, the future of dieting at the University of Minnesota. So where I'm getting tested is this guy that essentially kind of started the calories in, calories out type of model, right? Um, you could make the argument that other people had, had, had you know, one way or the other, but there's no question that that was a big part. And what was interesting about the Minnesota starvation experiment, you had these farmer guys, right? They're Minnesotan, Wisconsin, whatever. And what they were really trying to figure out was post-war when all of these people, you know, mostly Jews um, were being starved, how could they 
get people back to optimal health. So they had to starve these farmers and then potentially bring things back. And what was so interesting is the part that is very common in the bodybuilding world, very common in the eat to perform world, not very common in just your average online calculator. So I don't know if you're aware of this data, but, but the men were starting at a baseline. I believe it was 3,800 calories, right? So the baseline of these fit farmer guys was at 3,800 calories. And they set that for, I believe it was something like three months, right? And then the starvation calories where these guys lost all this weight and all this muscle um, was only like 1,900 calories, right? It's very common for people to be at 1,900 calories these days, right? And so, you know, getting back to, to me and my situation, um, you know, knowing that I was basically low the good majority of the time, so I was 21, then once I started to lift weights, my body started changing dramatically. I mean, you know, we know that as newbie gains, right? And within the first six months, I'd put on 15 pounds of muscle and I wasn't even really doing it optimally, right? Now, my trainer was, was um, an Army Ranger, right? We had Navy SEALs coming through our gym all the time. And so it was very common for us. We were really a, a, a strength-focused gym even though there was, you know, CrossFit as well. But uh, I put on 15 pounds of muscle within the first six months, um, even with my numbers being relatively low, right? So I think that that's important for the discussion overall because I really hadn't found a lot of symptoms up to that point. The, the biggest symptom I would say over the course of 12 years would have been the change in prioritizing sleep, um, you know, getting to the gym regularly, right? These were all habits that I did not have in place that started to become in place. But, but make no mistake about it, especially now that I know what it's like to have, you know, a, a little bit more testosterone. Last time we tested, you know, I was at 21.7. So, so essentially a bump of, of eight. What I want people to understand, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, is that what you guys don't do is what a lot of these people that are doing these mega doses, which is technically like the steroid type of, of view, without really a lot of understanding. You can move the needle, right, really small. And I would say that the biggest change, and I talked to Gil about this, the biggest change for me has been kind of patching up my sleep, right? So my sleep has gotten drastically better as a result. Um, I will say that the one thing that, that you know, when, when I first talked to him, uh, I said that I was not going to do fat loss um, because what I didn't want to do was I remembered the newbie game, right? I remembered when, you know, I just started weightlifting. And so my thought process was if I'm going to start adding testosterone, I can, I know how to lose fat, 
right? That, you know, that's the part that I think people don't understand is that when you are working with a surplus, when you are eating and building, right? This is the part of bodybuilding where it just becomes like this just amazingly diet focused thing. And we could talk about that towards the end. But everyone's playing with these really small windows. And what I'm saying is, is that I wasn't going to start testosterone and then not, you know, lift more weight and not run further and things of this nature. Because I know that once I want to pull things back, I wanted to feel what it was like to have it at the best. And I think part of, part of the sleep was the fact that, you know, I was working out probably more and better. Um, you know, not, not, you know, to, to this thought process that, that all of a sudden, you know, I'm going from like squatting 275 for sets to, to 415. That's not how, that's not how this is going down folks. Right. Um, there's a, you know, I was really hoping that a lot of my little nagging injuries would start to, to go away and they have to a certain extent. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, I'm still a 51 year old man who got into fitness at 39. Right. So, you know, this idea that there was going to be like these miracles and, and now all of a sudden I'm super jacked. I will tell you this, you know, um, I've moved, especially with the coronavirus and having to do stuff at home. I'm doing a lot of resistance band work. Right. So, you know, pump style training is not something I typically enjoy. One of the things that's nice about the resistance band is they work in like five minute sets, right? I think there's, you know, even in the case of CrossFit, there's way too many people that don't do like slow work, right? And you really can't build and hold on to muscle if you're really always in like these cardio zones, even though HIT can be in, HIT is aerobic exercise. At the end of the day, if you're constantly trying, and that's certainly what I found as I was losing the weight with the cardio, was that you get kind of this skinny fat look and you really can't explain it any other way. I wish there was another way to say it because I don't necessarily like, like that term. Um, so that's a lot to lay out in front of you, but I wanted to kind of lay lay the groundwork because it has been demonstrable, the change. Um, my size, you know, I'm, I'm definitely heavier than, than I was when I first started. I knew that. I knew I would, I would um, gain a little weight. I was trying to gain weight on purpose. Um, but, but the size is just different, right? Um, there's no way that it's all fat. It's certainly some fat, right? But um, why don't you kind of try and take a little bit of what I said there and then give your thoughts. And then there's some things that I think happen for people in this situation where they think one thing, right? And it's maybe kind of anecdotal, right? It's just, it's just happening, but it's not necessarily what you would expect for someone in the first, say, 10 weeks? All right. So first I want to backtrack because 
people have a lot of misconceptions about testosterone. For starters, it is a predominantly androgenic sex hormone. Androgenic means male. Women have testosterone as well. It's essential in women. Just like women have estrogen as a predominant sex hormone, men have estrogen and it is extremely important as men as well. I have a whole other video with um, Dr. Jordan Grant out of Houston. He's a good friend, phenomenal urologist. We had a video. Uh, he made one that's an hour and 15 minutes long on the role of estrogens in men and why it should not be inhibited or blocked. A lot of people claimed that they did not want to sit through that. So he and I, about a week ago, made another one that's about 12 minutes long, explaining the science behind it. So I just want to make it very clear that both testosterone and estrogen are very important hormones in both uh, sexes, men and women. With that said, we strive to treat symptoms and people. This means that our treatment is designed for symptom resolution, not to make a piece of paper look pretty. The biggest problem people run into when they look to optimize or repair their testosterone deficiency is they always look to approach it with an insurance-based approach for payment. Insurance companies have a priority of saving money. You as a patient, uh, and your well-being and your quality of life and your health is not your insurance company's priority. Their priority is to bill more than they put out. So saving money and developing protocols that are suboptimal for the purpose of saving money as opposed to treating people correctly is what they're going to do. This is why proper hormone replacement therapy is a patient pay process because you are not going to get a provider who is competent. Yeah. So you're hitting on something really great. Because when I went to my primary care physician, she would not test me for testosterone. Now, I recently went back and she was happy with the choice that I made, but we really got into it over why I would want to test my testosterone. And she had all of these preconceived notions. And so, I think what a lot of people would have when they would go into their primary care physician is a lot of resistance based on exactly what you said. Sure. And I need everybody to know that going in yes. because if you go to your primary care and you say, Hey, this is the way that I want to do things. Now I do use, you know, I know many of the people out there have HSA. I do use my HSA um, through you guys. And, and that's been, been great, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. If you're looking at this, trying to, you know, get testosterone on a budget, it's going to be very, very difficult. It's not a super expensive thing. I don't think, I think it's accessible to the good majority of people, but I think what Gil is saying is, is that you're going to run into a lot of resistance if you try to force it down the insurance pipeline or primary very, care. very easily. First and foremost, most primary cares, in fact, most endourologists and urologists included, are just not up to speed on the latest science and medicine and studies relating to testosterone. Uh, oftentimes when we see pay, uh, transfer patients from other clinic, they're stuck in protocols from the 80s and 90s. Uh, they're being done a tremendous disservice 
in terms of dosing, in terms of frequency, in terms of what labs are being run, in, in terms of diagnosis. And we believe in a patient-centric way of treatment, and this involves patient education. Uh, we will essentially spend a lot of time educating patients on what we're testing, why we're testing it. When we do a lab review, as you know, I know my, my, uh, my nurse practitioner often calls you with your follow-ups. Um, he will explain to you, look, this is what we tested. Here's why. Here's what it means. Here's what you need to do better. Here's where you need to optimize. It's not just a, hey, Paul, your labs look great. Have a nice day. See you in six months. It's more of a 20, 30-minute conversation that opens it up to questions so that you have a better understanding of your own care. Because at the end of the day, without patient autonomy, uh, you know, if we get hit by a bus tomorrow, you're still responsible for your own health. So it's an education process. And I think that a lot of primary care providers uh, have a fear of opening up a Pandora's box that they don't know how to manage. And the minute she runs that test on you and it comes back with a result, she's obligated, uh, you know, ethically and morally to kind of explain to you what's going on and possibly treat it. And I think she'd rather not know and not touch it rather than risk doing something that she's not comfortable with. So on one hand, I would almost commend the fact that she refused to test it if she's not comfortable with it, because if she tested it and treated you for it, as we often see with PCPs, and they do it incorrectly, she would be doing you a much greater disservice and essentially chemically castrating you, which I see often as well, uh, with improper protocols. And this is another issue with insurance companies is they'll mandate that you need to go in to the office every other week and that is the absolute worst thing you can do. Uh, a once every other week protocol on cypionate, if anyone understands pharmacodynamics, which discusses the half-lives of medication, this medication is excreted every seven days by a margin of 50%. So going in every two weeks is literally chemical castration. It is terrible. And this is how 90% of the uh, uh, providers in this country practice this form of therapy. And it is completely wrong. Uh, you know, we teach at home, um, you know, self-care by patients with supervision and guidance. Uh, and that is the, the most optimal way to do it. And the dosing frequency would change based on the subjective assessment of the patient with their feedback, along with the lab results. Now, just to touch on something you said earlier, since you've already mentioned that, that you're about eight to 10 weeks into your own journey, and you had mentioned where your numbers were. And yes, even though they almost doubled in that time on your free tea, you're still far from optimal because you got to understand, we like to take it low and slow. We like to start someone out at what we assume would give them some, some relief and symptom resolution. Eight weeks is not a long time. We come back, we test it again. We have a conversation about how they're feeling and there's always room to go up from there. And ideally we find, and I hate to put numbers on it because I know I said we, we treat symptoms um, rather than numbers, but if you had to twist my arm and say, what is the range where most men find symptom resolution? It is where their free testosterone is anywhere from 25 to 35 nanograms per deciliter. And I think you'd mentioned you're around 21. Now, yeah. again, it's so individual that if a patient says, I feel great, let me be, we will hit the pause button and we'll keep monitoring their labs for any potential risks or side effects to make sure we're not causing damage in the process, which we don't because we're, we're very proficient at managing this. However, um, it is still something that needs to be done, you know, indefinitely and, and managed and, and work through together with that patient. You got to take into consideration lifestyle, sleep. Does the person smoke? Are they overweight? Are they diabetic? Are they hypertensive? Uh, you know, do they exercise? If so, how often, what type, et cetera. There's so many, you know, what's their level of a hydration? What supplements and vitamins did they take? There's so many things 
that could be synergistic or contraindicated to their therapy, that this is a conversation that has to be an ongoing uh, uh, relationship. And if it's done correctly, it could be a godsend. And if it's done incorrectly, it could be, you know, your worst nightmare. So it's extremely important that you have a provider who's not only competent, but actually extremely proficient in knowing how to manage this correctly. And I have spent years educating providers on just how to do that. That's essentially how I got involved in my existing clinics now is uh, by, by starting out with provider education for the group um, who then asked me to join them. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but it's far and few in, in this country and around the world too. I mean, we, we get a lot of, uh, through uh, Next Level Dietetics, I get a lot of international consults. We can't prescribe medication overseas, but get a lot of consultation requests from, from men and women overseas in Europe, Canada, Mexico, even um, had, had someone from Asia call last week. And they want oversight and management on their therapy while they're being under the care of another clinic or physician. So in, in that instance, you know, for instance, in Mexico, you can, you can go get most of this stuff through a pharmacy. So having it managed through someone like you is going to be helpful. So every country is going to be a little different. Obtaining medication and the cost of actual medication is moot. I mean, that is the easiest part of all. People are always concerned about the cost of medication. It's not expensive at all. Um, I know at least with us, I mean, a, a majority of what you're spending, which as you said earlier, is very, you know, it's not a luxury product. It's more of a necessity. And we have patients from all walks of life, you know, blue collar, et cetera, um, extremely affordable. But at the end of the day, a majority of what is being spent outside of medication and lab work is for provider management and oversight. Okay, so that we can pay our staff so that we can pay to keep the lights on and continue to be there for patients who need the support. So, uh, you know, guys are always concerned with, well, I can buy testosterone for X or for Y. Yeah, that's, that's you know, you, you're going to spend what, two, three hundred dollars a year on your medication. That's nothing. That's, yeah. That's so, so let's keep going, because I think that people are going to be really interested in some of my thought process, because I think, you know, I'm interested to hear if this is the way the majority of your clients think, because I, I, I would suspect that they don't, right? So I went into it going, I want my physical capabilities to be more as a result of this, right? So one of the things that people, you know, you see a lot of people talking about this, you know, and, and once again, I'm not I, look, if you want to be 160 pounds, go ahead and be 160 pounds. I'm not, I don't have an opinion on that, right? But I see a lot of people that, especially in the low carb community, where you know they're using something, right? Helping themselves along. They're not being completely honest about that. And then, you know, they're talking about being able to, to build muscle. Well, I, I get it that you have a well formed bicep at 160 pounds, but you're still 160 pounds. So I don't know that that makes you an authority on building muscle, right? And so what do we know about building muscle? Well, we know that you need more raw materials, right? And you need more work. And in theory, and, and I default to you because I think you would know this better than, than me, but you know, I don't think anything is going to be superior than pump style training, right? Um, now, I think that when you look at me and the way that I do it, I just do not get mental stimulation from going to a gym 
and banging out, you know, 18 sets or whatever it ends up being um, of isolation type movements. I, I need to have a little bit of high intensity. I have actually started to run a little bit, um, but there is no question that the majority of my body composition um, gains up to this point is really coming from my isolated barbell work and isolated resistance training, right? And, and the nice thing, the thing that I think that people need to kind of put their head around, you know, there's this, this negatives related to mirrors within the CrossFit community. You may or may not be familiar with that. Um, look, if you work out and you pump up your muscles and you go into the look in the mirror, you know, you did something right. There is immediate feedback. Running does not give you this, right? CrossFit not, would not necessarily give you this. Um, certainly, you're going to go back to normal, right? And gradually over time, you're going to be able to build, build muscle as a result. But this idea that you can be low carb in a calorie deficit, you know, once again, if you have a low body fat percentage because you're consistently eating in a hypo or low caloric way, Yes, when you do pump style training for those five minutes, you're going to look jacked, right? But 15 minutes later, you're not going to be super well, you know, you, you're, you're not going to hold the muscle the way that you would if you cycled it a little bit better and allowed yourself to gain some weight every now and again. And I think the other part of that that people aren't completely honest about is that as you start to cycle up, and this was actually one of the things that always intrigued me about, about you, right, is, is there was a very clear embracing of food as part of your journey. Sometimes, you know, it could get a little out there, right? But, but in my view, I never started to become fit to, be, to have this joyless relationship with food. Right. I still wanted to have I want I wanted activity to be a part of what I do. And I think people aren't completely honest about that piece that when you're cycling up, when you're trying to get to a surplus to build build muscle, you have you have like this added pressure to do the work. Right. And so when you're under eating, you could miss a day or two and you know, you know, you're not really hurting yourself all that much because you're allowing the calories to do the majority of the work. So when you're actually eating at a bit of a surplus, you actually feel pressure to use the testosterone, right? To, to get to the gym, to make sure that you're doing your working sets. And I don't think everyone's completely honest about that. And so that would be one of the questions that I would ask is, would you say that the majority of the people that are going in for testosterone replacement. And, and we're talking a lot about men, but this is as big of a problem for women also. Um, and, and we can get into that as we go. But, but I'm really interested in that because I think that a lot of people, you know, they watch the Frank Thomas commercials and all this other stuff. 
and and they're intrigued by testosterone replacement, but they're not intrigued by the point where you know they should alter or have an intervention as it relates to you know their physical abilities. And I I feel like you know there's not enough of you know in the bodybuilding world there's obviously it's too much the other way. But in in just general population, would you say that that people take the challenge, or or is that something that you know within the clinics, you're you're fighting that battle most days? What is the specific question you're asking, people? Are people looking at this as a challenge to build muscle, hold on to muscle, and making activity a bigger priority in their life? No, a vast, vast majority of patients that come in, their body physique and muscle is far from their priority. Now, I'm not going to say that all men don't want to look better, but that is far from their issue. Now, if people came in when this began to be a problem, which is when most guys begin andropause in their mid-30s, and then started to monitor symptoms combined with lab results over time, and actually began proper therapy, and I emphasize the word proper, earlier on, sure, they can maintain their youth, vitality, muscle mass, et cetera, and have an easier and better time doing it as they age. The problem I see is that a lot of the guys are coming in their 50s and 60s when they're 20 to 30 years into this andropause process. And at that point, it's an uphill battle. Their priorities are getting back their sexual function, which has been diminished or completely lost, getting back the ability to have cognition and concentration and memory, which has been inhibited or completely lost, their ability to stay awake past 4 p.m., their ability to not have joint pain. Okay, these are people that are coming in very sick, very symptomatic. Type 2 diabetics as a result of metabolic uh, diseases and, and cardiovascular disease and all these other slew of medical issues as a result of neglect over 15 to 20 years. That is a vast majority of the patients that we see. To say that most of them come in with a performance or aesthetic goal would be less than 5%. Now, coming from the bodybuilding world, it would sound like 80% of the people out there using or seeking testosterone would be just that. But in the real world, it's quite the opposite. The problem is that it's the abusive doses. And I don't say the word abuse negatively, although it's obviously not a positive word. I say the word abuse for its textbook definition, and that is utilizing a compound at far greater doses or against its intended purpose. And that is what abuse is. You can abuse anything, um, but people abuse hormones and they abuse them for a goal, which is aesthetic. I'm not here to judge. Like I said, I'm a former bodybuilder, uh, but I am here to tell you that that message sends a loud and clear stigma to the public. And then the media amplifies it further that all hormones are bad and that all hormones are abused by all people. And that is where that notion comes from that guys walking in seeking testosterone therapy or inquiring are essentially just meatheads looking for big biceps. And that could not be further from the truth. We have grandfathers and grandmothers and, you know, people who don't even know how to spell the word testosterone on therapy, improving their life, improving their mobility, improving their independence and staving off aging related diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, 
uh, you know, metabolic syndromes, diabetes, et cetera, and being independent a lot longer and keeping themselves out of nursing homes. So this is, this is actually the reason why I bring it up, right? Because, you know, my true fitness life started when I started working out at a CrossFit gym. And like I said, my, it was so funny because our CrossFit gym was so divorced from CrossFit HQ at that point that they barely even knew what was going on at that time. Now, the gym nowadays is a little bit closer in line, but, but back then, no one knew that CrossFit was going to become what it became. It was basically just an army ranger, right, training his friends. And then, you know, I show up as the least fit person that he's probably ever seen, right? My initial picture is ridiculous, right? And I had lost, I, I, when I showed up at CrossFit, I was 162, right? I had already lost 100 pounds at that point. And I just looked like this emaciated, you know, kind of person at, at that point. Now, is it, is it incorrect to say that, and, and, and the reason why I'm bringing up CrossFit is because I feel like there's a lot of us that are in our 50s and maybe feel that it's taboo to get testosterone replacement because there's kind of this negative right like if you are trying to compete at the CrossFit games they're going to test you and that the interesting part about the testing that most people don't know oh let me let me ask you a question yeah go ahead what percentage of the population or of your listeners are professional athletes that get tested and get paid to compete in sport I mean let's be realistic here is that really people's concern about, hey, I'm going to the CrossFit Games and I'm going to get popped for using medically prescribed replacement therapy? I don't believe that no. is... No, no, no. And that's uh, not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that because of the testing at CrossFit, there's this purity example. There's this, it, it really kind of goes back to a little bit of what I was saying with food, right? Clean eating and, and all of these types of things. Even though, you know... Y- you might not compete in the CrossFit games. I'm actually making the argument that that thought process of doing it the right way. I'm just going to tell you right now, most people do not know what I'm about to tell you. And I think you'll, you'll be able to give some clarity on the situation. Most people doing what I'm doing right now would not test positive at the CrossFit games. Right. As a, as no, a, no, I, let me stop you there. That's incorrect. When you say positive, you're talking as if you're taking a, 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 a drug. Hormones are not yeah. drugs. They do. Right. I, listen, I can run your labs right now and, and determine that, yes, you're taking exogenous testosterone. Okay. I would test your gonadotropins and, and notice that your pituitary gland is suppressed and you're running exogenous testosterone. Absolutely. If you guys on TRT would most certainly, uh, with any level of competency, uh, lab test would tell me that you're taking testosterone. Well, okay. But so I'm happy to be wrong on that one. The, but I'm just telling you that I know of CrossFit games athletes that I've worked with that are on TRT. Right. Oh, I I work with many professional athletes in all sports, football, basketball, uh, bodybuilding, CrossFitters who are on far more than TRT and are not doing so with a prescription and they're being coached privately and quietly, um, and that is their prerogative. But are they cheating their sport? Yeah, they are. But it is rampant, yeah. and it is common ground. 
I, I feel like what I'm trying to point out is this middle ground where if you had a cold or if you had you know, a virus and there was an antibiotic that you could take that would make you better, right? Because what you're saying is that the majority of the people come to you degraded in a way that most CrossFit people would not be, right? They're, they're prioritizing their physical body and what I'm saying is a little bit of the approach, there's, there's all this negatives related to clean eating and, and doing things the right way. And there's this nuance that needs to be introduced to aging in general, right? And so when I make the argument for, you know, it, it, as a person who came to fitness at 39 and now I'm 51, and wanting to see what normal ever even fucking looked like. I had no idea, right, of what it would look like. And so now as my lifts are starting to go back to where they were previously, right, and you could easily see a path where those things are going to get higher, I just feel like introducing all of these concepts of we do it the right way or I'm a clean eater, those don't necessarily allow you to get to where you want to go. It almost ends up being like this trap that you're creating for yourself. That's not going to allow you to get to where you want to go. And if you can get a bit nuanced, right? I had the, what I'm, what I'm describing is me, right? For me from 39 to 51, I did not, you know, I knew I had this deficiency um, but did not want to address it because, you know, one, I wasn't experienced symptoms until the last year or two. Right. And then, you know, I did the thing that actually made the biggest difference. We had our podcast that was phenomenal. I will tag that into the show notes of this, but there was later on, I, I saw Joe Rogan talking about testosterone and it's so interesting because you know, once again, that's a, that's a low carb advocate. That is someone that's constantly talking about low carbs, but most people don't hear that he's getting help. And so they hear the low carb and they're fucking miserable. They can't sleep, right? They've got all these negative things because they're not doing what he's doing, right? And so he said something that was really interesting and was just someone had asked him, well, you know, you're on testosterone, what would you say to people? He'd say, well, you know, it's 2000 and, you know, I think it was, he said like 2017. Why would I, why would I want to be miserable? Why would I not want to see what I could be capable of as a human being? And I think that that's, that's sort of the argument I'm making to my audience, because even though, even though my audience is maybe a little bit more gen pop and not necessarily bodybuilders, like, like the people you might be surrounding with, they are very interested in, you know, activity being a priority in their life, right? And and working around those deficiencies. Well, if you wanna, if you wanna shut down any uh, uh, social stigmas around it in a in a heartbeat, um, I would just ask one question: Testosterone is an anabolic hormone. Okay, what is the most anabolic hormone in the human body? I don't know. Insulin. Right. Okay. I got you. The product of <laughs> diabetic of their insulin injection, or what would happen if we did? They would die. Right. 
So do we point a finger at a diabetic and say, well, he's using insulin, which is extremely anabolic, and therefore he's cheating, therefore we should shun him, therefore we should look down upon him, because he's using an anabolic hormone to improve his life. In his case, sustain his life, or a type two who's using it to improve his life in lieu of oral medication, which doesn't always work for severe resistance. So how is the improvement of the quality of life in the years that you're here, which is a very personal and subjective thing, how is that anyone else's place to judge? And if someone does want to judge, this is not your issue, this is their issue, because you're still doing everything you can to improve the quality of your life. Look, we can all point at ourselves and probably list three things that our friends, family, or colleagues don't necessarily agree with or would find critique in, right? But if we're doing these things because they enhance our life, then who is someone else to judge? That, that is the point. And people have to get away from social stigmas and trying to live their life for the satisfaction of others and start doing what is right for them from a health and wellness standpoint. And, you know, mental health, and people always talk about vanity and wanting to change your physique and how you're being shallow. Look, mental health is of no less importance than physiological health. And in recent years with suicide rates and all the mental health issues that, you know, have been in the media a lot more than in the past, people are starting to understand the importance of mental health. And they're starting to understand how you're not truly healthy if you're not truly happy just because your labs look good, right? We can check your blood and say you look great, you could still be a miserable person. And that to me is an unhealthy person. So if you happen to be more of a vanity type of a person due to whether it be insecurities, whether it be body dysmorphia, whether it be anything else, you need to look in the mirror and smile and be happy with what you see and who you are. And again, if that is important to you, you cannot let others judge you and tell you that you're a shallow or vain person and you don't deserve to be happy just because you happen to want to look a certain way. We don't make fun of women for wearing makeup and call them shallow and vain, right? Why is it okay for, for a woman to go out and get surgical implants or surgical modifications or Botox or facelifts or any of that stuff? And I'm not saying it isn't, but why is that socially acceptable? But when a man wants to look better, have a trimmer waist, and bigger muscles, which is the equivalent in case, in fact, I'll even argue that it's different because you can't buy a physique as a man. You actually have to spend years earning it in the gym and in the nutrition field. Okay, but why is optimizing your hormones to give yourself a better environment that's more conducive to hitting your goals, which still require hard work? I can't go give a plastic surgeon 10 grand and walk out with big biceps that are actual muscle tissue, right? I have to earn them for, for years. Right. Why is that a bad thing? Why does that make you a meathead? Why does that make you a, a, a negative person? But yet your wife can put on lipstick in the morning for the sake of vanity and enhancement. And everyone says, wow, you look great. Or, or, or bleach her hair. And wow, you look great. Again, this is individual quality of life issues. These are your own. They're not anyone else's. So I just want yeah, to- Yeah, and I, th I think what you're, what you're I, I want to piggyback because I, I really want to hit, hit this point home is that if you're 55 years old and you're going to the CrossFit gym that you have or, or a regular gym or whatever, and 
you know, you're essentially eating the equivalent of 1100 calories as a male, you know, I mean, we just hear these just extremely low levels, you know, when you look at somebody say, well, the only thing that's ever worked for me is, is low carb. And then you, 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 you're having a conversation with them and they're heavier than they would like to be. And maybe their diet's really not on point and things of this nature. One thing that I want to make really super clear, whether it's Gil or whether what we do is that when you get to the lower levels, right? See, one of the things that people don't understand as it relates to online calculators or all these things that you want to do because it's all cheaper and things of this nature, at the end of the day, what is cheaper? Having more knowledge long-term or being kind of baffled and being told what to do and never quite getting to where you want to go, right? And I would argue that what you're doing through your clinic actually allows people to reach their goals a little bit better, right? That, that they're addressing deficiencies that they might not even understand that they have. You know, when I walked in with my lab work, the one thing that made my primary care physician smile was the fact that I was walking in with an understanding of what was going on, right? And so when you look at, you know, any kind of tiered dieting plan, right? So the way that most people do it is they just go as low as possible, as quickly as possible, and then they quit by the fifth day because they're miserable, they're not sleeping or whatever, and maybe they make it two to three weeks or whatever, but at the end of the day, most people fail because they don't do things, you know, the way that we do it, and I'm, I'm sure this is the way that you do it as well, is you're going to tear things down. Now, in the case of Gil, who's working with really super high level um, people that are trying to get on stage and things of this nature, most people are just not aware of how aggressive aggressive needs to be in that scenario, right? People, people just think to themselves, it, it, it's just not as important to the majority of people, you know, to see veins in their lower abs, right? So they're willing to go to this extreme sacrifice. And then the other part that even I would argue bodybuilders struggle with, because it just becomes this thing where they're dieting all the time. And certainly, you know, I'd be interested to hear why your experience, why you changed away from kind of moving to where it's more of a hobby. And I suspect it's because, you know, the, the rigidity of it all, right. And constantly being on this, you know, treadmill of, of having to go lower, right. You then have to go into a surplus, you have to build muscle and then you have to cut down. And what I think the majority of people kind of, land on in the end is having a certain amount of body fat percentage where they look like they work out, where that people know that they lift, they're healthy, but they can also go to date night without having to worry about it. They're not being super rigid about things. Even in the case of eat to perform, we talk about this all the time. I don't track my calories 365 days of the year. In fact, I only count my calories really when, um, I'm in a deficit. You know, the good majority of the time, I'm just eating like a, a normal human being. I'm not trying to really push the athletic side of things so my calories aren't 
five to 6,000 calories or anything like that. I'm probably eating 3,000 calories a day. It gives me just enough calories. So I'm able to do the workouts that, you know, allow me to feel and look healthy, like you said, in the mirror. Um, but I feel like there's this narrative, right? And, and I, I think, you know, once again, the best bodybuilders do it the right way. The worst bodybuilders are constantly scared to eat food and they're eating at this really low level. And then ultimately they have to address a deficiency because they have no insulin, right? Like even in the case of your program, my program, at the lowest, they're all gonna look relatively low carb. That's the, that's the criticism I have of low carb. I don't have a problem with low carb as an example. The problem that I have is that if you're constantly stay, saying, staying low, it's extremely difficult to be any level of anabolic. And when we say anabolic, people think bodybuilder. No, anabolic directly relates to quality of life over time. It directly relates to bone density. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a science and, 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 and math guy, okay? So I don't like social terms. I like actual scientific evidence-based uh, type stuff. So, I mean, anabolic is basically 50% of metabolism. Metabolism is essentially all chemical processes that occur in the body. And all these processes are either anabolic or catabolic. Catabolic means you're taking a molecule, breaking it down into smaller molecules. And anabolic means you're taking molecules and or elements and building them up into larger compounds or molecules. That's it. There are anabolic right. and catabolic processes happening in your body at all times. Right. Cellular respiration, digestion, digestion is catabolic. Okay. Repairing tissue is anabolic. So anabolic simply means you are in a state of building instead of a state of breaking. Okay. Lipolysis, which is the reduction of fatty acids is a catabolic process, converting fat into energy. Okay. Protein synthesis or to synthesize means to form is a cellular process that builds up protein from amino acids, which are transported out of your cells for the sake of repair of tissues, including muscle fibers. So people need to understand what these terms mean and stop using social terms to define science, understand the scientific definition. Uh, anabolic has nothing to do with steroids, has nothing to do with bodybuilding, has to do with the function of life. It is your metabolism. All right. And the more anabolic you are, the less catabolic you are, the more muscle tissue you will retain in a caloric deficit. So when you're in a negative energy balance for the sake of losing mass, hopefully body fat, you're going to have a much easier time if it is done correctly. Now, just to touch on the whole carb thing, I am not a fan of low carbs. In fact, even when I competed, I would run up to 185 grams of carbs per day up until peak week. Literally, 185 for me is low carb. All right. In the off season, I could eat five to 700 grams of carbs a day, mostly rice, potatoes, maltodextrin and other supplements. However, um, you know, we did have days where we crammed in, you know, bowls of cereal and, and bananas and other things to, to hit those numbers in a bulk. But even in a cut, you know, 185, 200 a day is, is relatively low carb if you have sufficient muscle mass and your activity level supports it. You need carbs in and around your workout pre, intra and post. Okay, your body requires glycogen stores in order for muscles to function and repair and, and hold on to water so that you don't start to dry out and, and hurt your joints. And really, the only time I would ever go low carb is in the peak week for water manipulation. 
uh, so that I can dry out the subcutaneous and then pull the water in with uh, you know sodium, potassium, hydration, and carbs on the day before, yes. Can we back up for just a second? Because you said something that I think most people really need to focus on more. It's the emphasis of eat to perform. It is literally the argument that I make every single day is that you want to be more anabolic than you are catabolic, right? And the issue is that when you're constantly under eating, and once again, this is not, this is not just a low carb argument or, or a moderate carb argument or even a high carb argument, is that you can be catabolic when you're having carbohydrates, you can be catabolic. Um, obviously, that's the, the big appeal. You don't, you don't hear of most people trying to bulk um, e eating, um, eating low carb, but in a weird way, they do kind of do that, right? Because, you know, it's very common for me to have someone say, okay, well, if you're low carb, then why don't we track for a week and see how it goes. And then what you see is that these people are eating 2,500 to 3,000 calories in just fat, right? And so I, what we're talking about is really this idea that when you're catabolic, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if it's not uncomfortable, your body's sort of adjusted to it too much. And so it's sort of ineffective. So but, I, really think, I really think that the part about being in a, anabolic the majority of the time, what people don't understand is that it, it, it allows the catabolic to be easier, right? Would you say that that's glucose how you would understand? Is the, glucose is the primary energy source of your body. Okay, your heart, your brain, and, and every cellular function requires uh, glucose for, um, for energy. Uh, cellular respiration begins with a glucose molecule. So essentially, it is so important that if you do not consume carbohydrates, your body will go and make its own glucose. And this is a process called gluconeogenesis. Your blood sugar or, or, or blood glucose levels begins to drop and the alpha cells of your pancreas release glucagon, which then dumps the glycogen stores out of your liver. And that supplies the blood glucose for your, your bloodstream. And if that is then depleted and you're still not eating carbs, the next thing to go is gluconeogenesis. And this is whereby the protein in your muscle tissue will be broken into amino acids. Those amino acids get mobilized into the liver and then converted over to glucose. So when you're on a deficiency of, of uh, glycogen due to a low-carb diet long-term, you are, by definition, catabolizing protein or muscle tissue. So uh, I am, again, not a fan whatsoever. I mean, we may put guys on a what we call a primer diet two to three weeks maybe of a keto-based diet. And again, this is only to reverse the effects of insulin resistant in uh, pre-diabetic or, or type two diabetic um, guys or, or girls that are looking to, to drop weight. We're looking to prime their sensitivity, may add some berberine or metformin in there for that, but uh, primarily they need to consume carbohydrates. You need at least hundred grams of their carbohydrates uh, or, or of glucose for your body to survive. And again, if you don't get it exogenously, your body will make it from amino acids. Um, don't take my word for it. Go ahead and look it up. And, uh, and yeah, you, you need your glucose. The problem that you run into when people look it up is they're going to hear a message that isn't always true. 
Right? Don't look up the opinions. Look up the science. Gluconeogenesis. Google it. See what it means. See what your body does to produce glucose out of amino acids. When you're <laughs> We're we're obviously on the same team on this one, so um, I, I think I think kind of getting towards the end because we we've obviously yeah I I actually yeah. have a uh, an interview in about two minutes <laughs> yeah so um, I think where I'd like to just end is just this idea where um, what you're saying related to being anabolic most of the time right. I think is something that people need to hear. And when you're looking at, you know, addressing a deficiency like testosterone, then you can do that. And then if you can make activity a priority, I did have one question. If, yeah, if we like, could, I have to run, go ahead and hit me with it. Yep. Is, is when you are lifting weights or active, it is going to allow your body, because that's a big concern that I've been hearing, is that won't this replace my, my testosterone and my body won't have the ability. If you're lifting weights, it does help that a little bit, right? No. You're talking about endogenous testosterone? Yeah. No. Uh, real quick, without getting too deep, although it's a little hard when you're talking about a negative feedback loop in the endocrine system, uh, I'll say it rapidly. <laughs> you can play it three, four times, pause it, and Google it. Um, your... Hypothalamus pituitary testicular axis is a loop that sends signals and it's what's known as a negative feedback. That means when one signal goes up, the other goes down and vice versa. Luteinizing hormone is what's known as a gonadotropin released by the pituitary. It travels down the bloodstream into your testicles. It hits the latex cell receptors, causes them to produce testosterone, which is then excreted into the blood. This is what's known as an endocrine hormone. When that testosterone travels through the tissues, aromatizes into estradiol, which is E2, that attaches to the estrogen receptors in the hypothalamus and turns off this faucet, tells you you have enough. When you take an exogenous form of testosterone in a replacement therapy to fix a deficiency, you have optimal and constant levels of serum in your plasma at all times. This turns off the negative feedback loop and tells your pituitary gland to discontinue luteinizing hormone release. Therefore, there is no activity that you're going to perform that is going to secrete additional levels of testosterone endogenously. So gotcha. no, I know I hit you with a lot there. No, and that's it great. Makes sense yeah, to everyone, but I'm trying to do it quickly because I have to, uh, to jump on another call. But other than that, you can, you can kind of look up how the HPTA works. And uh, the, the, the short answer is you are suppressed, which is not a big deal because you're deficient to begin with. You're simply replacing that. Well, I think that answer, basically, we can end on that note, because at the end of the day, what you're trying to buy when you're working with someone like Gil or, um, you know, even like me with something like diet is you're trying to buy information you do not have. Right. And you can tell people to Google it and things of this nature. But I think if anybody listened to that last, you know, five minutes of what you just said, Mm -hmm. You're know, obviously very knowledgeable as it relates to this thing. And that's what people ultimately want. So I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, we'll definitely do it again. And once again, it was, I think, I think you broke it down. Awesome. My pleasure. Last word. Thank you. Thank you again. I appreciate that. I hope you and all your listeners stay safe in this uh, quarantine period. Um, and then, like I said, if anyone has any questions that needs to reach me, it's www.next level dietetics.com appreciate you having me back on and uh excited to do it again in the future 
All right. Have a great day. Bye now. Well. Thanks.